I think I, I hurt myself on that last clap there. Hurt yourself clapping? Perhaps. Injury by podcasting. It's a very small group of people. That'd be such a bad look. If you hurt yourself while podcasting, it, it's really funny. Podcasting may... I don't think it's workers comp for that. This is Making It Up, co-hosted by myself, Sharice Poon, and Eugene Can. We come together on a weekly basis to talk about things that we are interested in, have questions about, want to get each other's thoughts on. Make It Up is produced by Makin, which is original storytelling at its purest, through captivating audio, engaging words, and beautiful visuals. Making It Up is an exercise in analyzing and dissecting important movements in creative culture. It's an opportunity to sound off on each other and make sense of the complex, intertwined world we live in. We try to come to some sort of conclusion in order to be helpful to you, our listeners, but really we are working through things and we appreciate you working through them with us. If you like what you hear and you want to help us keep going, you can support us on patreon.com slash make it. Let's get into it. How was your week, Sharice? I ate dinner for the first time outside in a restaurant in like eight weeks. So I've had lunch in a restaurant outside. So I'm not trying to sound like, you know, exaggerate this. So I have eaten in a restaurant outdoors. But it was the first time having dinner outdoors because of, you know, several government restrictions and also just personal health and safety concerns. It was really enjoyable. It wasn't a fancy dinner at all. We just got ramen. But yeah, God, it sounds I know I sound so sentimental, but it was just really nice. Like it felt like a treat. I had breakfast brunch with someone the other day and it did feel a little bit different. But also, you know what? I have to say that he brought up a good point because he, he lives by himself and it can be challenging for you to always have to cook for one person. Yeah. So it, it is nice if you have the opportunity to have a partner or whatnot to share the workload. Like everything's just like all on you. Sourcing the ingredients, cooking it, cleaning it, etc. Yeah. And you wind up eating a lot of repeat stuff when you're cooking yeah. for one. Yeah. Should we get started? Let's get into it. So for the past couple of episodes, we have been... And when I say we, I mean Eugene. Eugene has been asking the Discord community what subjects they're interested in for us to talk about on Making It Up. And he usually gives 10 links and then people just say, these are my favorite. These are the ones I'm interested in. I do get excited when people get excited about the links because that means I've done a good job curating. Yeah, this week people were really excited. People were more excited than last week's links. Or maybe they were but maybe they were more free. Who knows? As in like maybe their schedules permitted them to read more stuff. But yes. I'm glad you're excited when they're excited. So my subject this week comes from a link that a lot of people chose and said they were interested in, or at least responded to. And essentially it's whether New York is dead. And what does a dead city really mean anyway? So SM Tilney sent this meme video from the stand-up comic called Ronnie Lordy. And I got to say, this meme really did make me smile. So I guess I'll put that link in the show notes. Very hard to describe. Essentially, it's Leonardo DiCaprio as both New York City and people who decide to stay in New York City. I'm not going to describe it because I will just ruin the meme. And then Jeremy L. also voted for six. And he said, New York is not dead, just affluent, diehard capitalists who miss Sweetgreen and Broadway. Also, because I want to hear Eugene's thoughts on NYC, since I heard through the grapevine, he isn't the biggest fan. I wonder if that's true or not. I'm trying to retrace my steps to see if I said something disparaging about New York. Where in the grapevine he heard that you're not the biggest fan of New York? Is that even the kind of thing you hear through rumors? Did we talk about this? I mean, I think Hong Kong out New York's New York. I do not understand that sentence. Like, I think for everything that New York thinks it is, I think Hong Kong in many ways does it better. I already know that you love Hong Kong, even though you would never use the word love probably in that sentence. No, I would. I would. I think. Well, anyways, this is something to to discuss later because I'm trying to think there's no way that you could categorically be like right down the line be like, hey, Hong Kong is unequivocally better. But. No, you know what? That's I should probably even take that back. I think there's it really depends on who you talk to. I mean, it's right? a position you can take. But I feel like to understand why you would take that position comes a lot from 
like you said, like from background. No, but I'm I'm really good at refuting my own arguments, though. I'm like, well, I know I don't. E- you don't even need me here anymore. You're just gonna make an argument and then backtrack yeah. it. I'll I'll just sit here. I'm just gonna. Uh, you do the whole thing. I'll just do a monologue where I argue both sides. This is a, this is a dangerous path to go down. Next episode is Eugene doing two voices. One is his regular voice. The other is him refuting himself. Okay, let's continue. Okay, continuing. Erwinism <laughs> and Seth both made kind of similar points, which was that the death of New York can be applied to a lot of major cities that we live in. And Seth particularly called out that London is sort of similar, sort of different in terms of that conversation, which I'm interested in as well, because I've only lived in big cities in my life. While the topic and the articles we're referencing talk about New York specifically. They are problems, or I don't want to say problems already. They are attributes of major cities globally. So yeah, thank you to the Macon community for making it easy to pick a subject. I said to Eugene on the side when I said I would do this topic, whether having lived in New York qualifies me to talk about it. I don't know, but I feel like I'm just going to put it out there as background information for everyone anyway lived in new york from 2008 to 2013 Damn, it was five years yeah it's five years holy okay you you are yeah very qualified oh thank you i mean i don't know what new york is like right now i haven't been as well in about but you have good friends that live there yeah i have good friends that live there i haven't been personally in about two years i mean obviously no one went anywhere this year and then before that i was in london but i i actually still miss it a lot and I have always thought about moving back. Maybe now is a good time. The two articles that we're going to actually reference, one is written by this stand-up comic called James Altucher, and it's this really long medium article. The title is in all caps, which I don't know why that bothers me, but it does. And the all caps title is NYC is dead forever, period. Here's why. And it starts out with him first moving to New York and all the things he loves about it. And then it talks about, you know, what people are saying about New York being dead. And he outlines that there are three big reasons people move to New York, business opportunities, culture, and food. And then he throws in friends. And my first thought at this point was like, well, what about the people who already live there? They don't need reasons to move to New York. They already live in new york so i feel like the audience has already been like constricted to people who have this choice of like moving or not moving and he goes on and he says a lot of it is anecdotal like my friends are leaving because they figured out they can work remotely they've seen quotation mark bad incidents that they're unhappy with in relation to homelessness like homeless people and racist people on the streets and also he says this sentence about protests that like made me i was like oh this this article is enough already because he says nothing was wrong with the protest but i was a little nervous when i saw videos of rioters after curfew trying to break into my building so i just don't like his tone of voice where he's like oh i know what the right thing to say here should be but Mm -hmm. also like dog whistle not happy about this situation i'm not gonna go into detail because i really just don't think I don't think it's worth it to go into the detail of all the ways that he feels like New York is no longer the city that he wants it to be. Because essentially, I felt the article was so selfish and self-centered. It just felt like this long whine about all the things I liked are gone. All the people I knew have left. I can't eat at my favorite restaurant anymore. Things aren't convenient for me. How do you feel about it? The way that I've seen these things laid out is that in general, they're often written from two perspectives, I think. It's like the perspective of someone on the outside, or secondly, the perspective of someone that is so linked to the objectivity of it. And in this case, the objectivity really means like, oh, the finance is going to go away. Like the numbers right. are going right. to influence this. Right. And- We've the reason why I found this piece so interesting is that in these sort of top 10 cities or just top cities, the call them whatever that means, right? There's always this belief that 
they're defined by these certain things. And if you lose that, they're unable to change direction Mm -hmm. or to evolve. Right. And I, I mentioned this too, is that how do you really define the death of something that doesn't really live? Yeah. Right. Yeah. I mean, this is one of my big points, which is that I don't think a city can die, at least not a major city where people will always continue to live in. Like a city, a city doesn't die until something like the day after tomorrow happens. Do you know what I mean? Like a completely dystopic natural disaster situation. And the thing is, is that I would say that the many things that define a New York or Hong Kong are very innate. It's like an attitude, right? Yeah. It's a way of being. And in some ways you have, I don't really have a clear and clean way of describing this. But think of it almost as like a pyramid, right? So the very top of the pyramid are the people that define New York. And that could be the attitude and mentality of coming in and, hey, I'm going to make it here. I'm going to like build something. I have access to XYZ that allows me to kind of realize a vision and a dream. And there's other people that are enamored by what New York represents because what other people have built. Right. And they're kind of on the coattails. And I think the ones that are first to leave are the ones on the coattails, Mm. the ones that are unable to see how they can leverage or they just don't understand the city well enough to understand, well, if this happens, then that opens up because it's really like a bandwidth and oxygen thing. If all the attention is being put on one thing, what happens is that, you know, it just opens up resources for another thing. The thing that bothers me about even your narrative, which I don't necessarily disagree with, but I feel like even telling that story ignores the fact that there are lots of people who just have to live in New York. And I know have to is a stretch, but there are large amounts of people who were born in New York, their families are in New York. They're not the people who are, you know, the actors who are aspiring to be on Broadway necessarily, though some of them probably are, but they're just people who are citizens of the city. I feel like the entire article just doesn't talk about the people who have to stay there, who continue to live there, whose like whole history is there. Just because something is rebuilt doesn't mean that it needs to always be in the same reflection of its past. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Right. And I would say that at every point in time, you said self-centered. And I think that's a great word because a certain sense of selfishness in terms of your vision or perspective of how a city should operate is the is its model and it should continue on that narrative for eternity or as long as you're part of I it. I was just about to say that I know people like to use the word dead because it's clickbaity. You know, reading is dead, a sentence. It is not as clickbaity to say there are some things about New York that aren't what they used to be and it's going to be different now in the future. It's much longer headline. Right. But that's essentially what it is. Right. I don't I don't think I mean, okay, maybe James Altucher really means New York is dead, dead. But I think when they say dead, it's really that what was attractive to you is no longer there. Yeah. As a person, as a singular individual, the thing that you want New York to be, it isn't to you. It doesn't look that way to you. And that doesn't mean the city is dead. The city will just be different and become something different. and. I guess the different thing is not attractive to that singular person. Because we could also take everything that's said about New York and it's been also for different reasons parlayed into the same argument around Hong Kong for different reasons. Yes. But I would also say that it's like it, it falls under the same pretense of this. This is probably something that's going to veer off into a different sort of perspective. But it's like. Ultimately, if I'm a New Yorker or someone living in Hong Kong. If I've been here long enough and I understand the lay of the land, you do also see that there's opportunities that exist and yeah. that the city isn't defined by one singular thing that is rooted in statistics, right? And especially in the case of New York, oh, like people in 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 Manhattan are, how do I put this? Yeah, definitely. There's businesses that are leaving Manhattan, for example. And what's the outcome of that? Does that actually open up the space to more things that make New York great? 
And I don't think that you go to New York thinking like, oh man, I'm enamored by how many uh, multinational companies and chains. Conglomerates conglomerates. and luxury fashion stores they have. Exactly, right? You're actually enamored by the culture and the culture is something that is not defined by what you see and touch. Yeah, so this is a really good moment to bring up the second article which is from The Atlantic, and it's called Affluence Killed New York, Not the Pandemic. And it's written by Kevin Baker. Again, kind of a clickbaity title. It is not about New York's death, but he goes into more detail into the subject that you're talking about. You know, what is the numbers result of conglomerates and chain stores leaving the city? And he says, even though New York is not dead, the way people describe it, we can't dismiss the fact that its economy is shaken. Like we do have to reckon with the fact that there are closed stores, there's less jobs, there's a surge in crime and disorder, there's a lack of leadership. And also the way leadership is talking about reviving New York is about making it again an attractive playground for the rich and powerful. And so Kevin Baker says, hey, we actually need to look at the structure of the New York economy and reconsider when we build it back. Do we want it to revolve around the same things that it was already revolving around, which were tourism, finance, luxury, retail, and real estate? And I think it's not as interesting read as James Altucher's, probably because it has more numbers and complicated situations in it. But I think that's like the other side of the coin, right? Did you ever read the opinion piece by Jerry Seinfeld that also addressed, so you think New York is dead? No. And I'm going to read a passage from Go this. Real, live, inspiring human energy exists when we coagulate together in crazy places like New York City. Feeling sorry for yourself because you can't go to the theater for a while is not the essential element of character that made New York the brilliant diamond of activity it will one day be again. And this is to my point, right? The physical act of going to the theater is not what makes New York, right? It's the things you can't touch and see. And that I think is really critical to understanding that. Things like this can't really die. but uh, At people who say New York is dead. And also, he kind of takes shots at the end. We're going to keep going with New York City if that's all right with you. And it will sure as hell be back. Because of all the real tough New Yorkers who, yeah. unlike you, loved it and understood it, stayed and rebuilt it. So I think that's very accurate. What I do think is that in many ways, cities themselves are probably propped up and, oh, yeah. and put on a pedestal based off of financial power. If you remove that from the equation, it doesn't diminish the value of it per se. It does diminish the value of it in a certain context. I mean, sure, you can say, yeah, you can say that New York's financial influence on a global scale has diminished. But as we've been saying over and over again, that doesn't mean that the city is necessarily lesser. It just means that its role is different in the world or right now its reputation is different and when it comes to the way the economy moves like yeah we just have to see it is what it is right now i don't think that the people who say the pandemic is so severe that it, the economy is not going to come back in new york are right but i'm also not an expert economist so i won't you know die on that mountain i mean the one thing that i've always looked at especially in hong kong and new york because they've they're seen as two markets with extremely expensive real estate markets, right? It's what is the outcome when rent is cheaper? And you're seeing in Hong Kong, like rental prices are coming down, for example. And yes, yes, there is part of it that goes hand in hand with like the opportunity. But I also wonder what, what it means in the long term because it's, it's kind of like rising boats. Hold on, put this. It's it's similar in the sense that the reason why they're so so expensive is also because of the access to high paying jobs. And what does it mean when those? Okay, but this window? is also why Kevin Baker's article is important. And there's kind of a long quote I'm going to read from his piece. Baker writes. Former Mayor Rudy Giuliani asserted as well that many of my friends are leaving and they are basically upper middle class and wealthy people. They are the tax base of the city. I always ask liberals, why do you attack rich people so much? Don't you realize you need them to pay for the poor people? And Baker says, this is a tautology that has become a vicious circle. 
the more New York has allowed working people and small businesses to be driven out of the city, the more it has come to depend on the very wealthiest people and firms with the wherewithal to move if they don't get the subsidy or tax break they demand. The tumult raises a question of just who the city is for and how it should serve its people. In the past, New York has repeatedly made bold gambles to renew itself, to adjust the city's power relationships and find new ways to draw goods, capital, and, and above all, creative and hardworking people to itself. And I think the, I mean, the end is very inspiring about drawing creative and hardworking people. But the beginning and middle bit that I read is, you know, will New York and Hong Kong and other major cities prioritize the less wealthy people in the long term? So right now, rents are down in New York and Hong Kong. But in the future, it, if the city continues to aspire to attract the really wealthy and to have that same kind of image and be that sort of place, then we'll be back where we were, which is not necessarily a good thing, actually, at least financially speaking. I don't mean like culturally. And as we've already said, I think the cultural thing does not go away. One thing. You know, you had said earlier about Hong Kong and talking about Hong Kong might lead to a different type of discussion because of the nature of why people are saying Hong Kong is dead, which to be explicit on air, people are saying that because of changing political situation. Let's put it that way over the last couple of months. And one thing I think about that's different between New York and Hong Kong is with New York. I think there is still the semblance of more individual control over whether the city survives. Whereas the situation in Hong Kong feels less controllable, which isn't to say there isn't action that you can take and that there's still room for individual response, like whatever that is, whatever you choose as an individual. But this sort of refutes your previous agreement that a city is not necessarily defined by like diminished political freedoms might be the changing like future of Hong Kong. But at the same time, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the death well, of Hong Kong. Well, I didn't Kong. say it's the it's death of Hong under- Kong. I just think the challenge, I mean, this is super subjective but it, and I'm not in New York, so I can't say what yeah. it feels like to be in New York right now. And despite like having good friends there, I'm not personally there, but I do feel like Okay, the least we can say is that the challenge is different, right? But I would also say that the challenge in Hong Kong feels, at least to me, more insurmountable. Yes. Because you know that moving forward, you can project to what Hong Kong's future, as determined by outside forces, is going to look like. But for New York, assuming that there is leadership that still cares about New York, I mean, they still have a mayor, they still have a governor, like political politicians have not abandoned the city. Like there is a sense that there is more people heading in the same direction of what you want it to be. I'm I'd, I by no means think that Hong Kong is dead. I just think that yeah. in Hong Kong, it's even yeah. more so of like individual people making decisions about what what am I going to do? What do I feel like I'm capable of doing in the future? Whereas. Uh, I don't want to speak necessarily for New York because I'm not there, but I would just think that you would still have like a neighborhood. You still have, you you know, the people that you live and work with in the city who you might be able to like lean on more of, I guess, reviving the city in the same way. Despite all the negativity surrounding this, what would be the positive consideration for someone to move to New York right now? Or to move to a Hong Kong, places that are kind of undergoing these challenging, right? Uh, how do I put this? That are undergoing these challenging times, and unfortunately, I think it only falls within yeah. the realm of yeah positivity for a handful of, or a certain type of worker, and not everybody. Yeah, because I do think there are opportunities now, as you said, in big cities. If you've always wanted to move to a major city like New York or Hong Kong or London and rents are really down in those places, then that's already a big boost. And I feel like you almost don't even have to consider, okay, what is the cultural climate right now? If the rent is lower and I can afford it and I've always wanted to make this move, 
then now could be good timing for that, you know, assuming that health and safety permits, which is like also the first thing that came to mind if you're like thinking about moving anywhere. The bigger something is, the longer it takes to fall as well. Like I think these catastrophic overnight failures and and the destruction of something that's taken many years to build up is something you have to consider too. In that in many ways, it's like, even if it is going to change, it won't change overnight because of all the infrastructure that's already yeah, in place. Yeah, and I just don't think that a city's death happens necessarily in your lifetime because some things about cities are just geographical. Like New York and Hong Kong are both on the water in relatively temperate climates. They have ports, they have major airports. I know this is super boring, but you get what I mean, right? It doesn't have to be like a sexy city that fresh grads love to move to, to be a city that exists. And yes, mm -hmm. like we've already said, it's going to be something different, but I think not just infrastructure and what I said about geography doesn't change, but I think appeal doesn't go away that quickly either. I would say that people thinking about New York and Hong Kong still have certain mm -hmm. associations and memories of it that doesn't go away in five, six months. Who yeah. is this a positive for? I think it's a positive for people in the city as well. I think it's been. Oh, yeah, for sure. Yeah, we, we definitely did. I think it's we definitely gosh, did not. I don't know if this is selfish, but I'm I'm about to say harp on that enough. I think I think it's been so nice to live in a city for a while that doesn't have tons of tourists in it. Yeah, unfortunately, that's. But and I know that that's a privilege industry, because I don't work. Yeah, exactly. I don't work in an industry reliant on an industry that requires yeah, tourism on tourism and hospitality. So I recognize that, but I think like as. A person who lives in a major city, which is usually like it feels like fifty percent tourists, it it's yeah. just been kind of nice to see the city without tourism in it. And I know economic again, like I know economically, there's been severe impacts as a result. But I feel like as people who call a place home, it's just nice to get to see your home the way it is without visitors. And that's the thing too. It's like Hong Kong, especially is. We're fortunate because this, because of the internet, essentially, it's, there's an inflow of capital, right? So it's not, there's not, it's not that there isn't money coming in versus if you're in a flat out tourist destination that only has tourism as its pillar. Yeah. Obviously it's far different. You know, earlier I said kind of a negative or a challenge I see with Hong Kong that I feel like New York doesn't have, but I also see I guess what you would call an opportunity, like a potential opportunity for Hong Kong that New York doesn't have, which is I also think at the same time that I think there are aspects of, you know, personal civil liberties that will erode. I also think that we have a strong economic foundation and that that will only get stronger in the future because of the political situation. And so if therefore, if you lean into that, if you accept that, you know, the city's going to continue to have this base of wealth, then what can I do? Because I don't worry, because I don't have to worry about that. Like, how can I choose to take advantage of it? Does that make mm. sense? I'm trying to like not be too explicit. The reason why I'm trying to think through this, I'm, I'm wondering if there's something that like we're missing in terms of, or are we just talking about the most obvious things? One question that Altucher raised which I didn't know what to make of it, is he said the main reason why New York's really dead now and wasn't in the past is internet and remote working. His argument is that everyone this year has adapted to a new kind of lifestyle and is accepting of doing everything on Zoom. And so people are ready to live in Nashville and Austin or the middle of nowhere because they know they can be just as productive with the same salary and a higher quality of life. Where are people going to leave if they leave New York? Right. And I think there is a sort of brand association with it. But one thing I do find interesting is that if you are a creative, right, and you decide to leave New York, 
where's the next place you can end up moving to within the the United States? Yeah. And there is a map that shows that a lot of people are looking at Atlanta. And Atlanta has been a creative hotbed for uh, the last few years. I just think it's unfortunately sort of been in the shadows of New York. Well, what does it? Okay, pro con, right? On one hand, people leaving New York and moving to these like second, third tier cities could give those cities like the economic boost they need. But also, will it sort of rapidly change their character? I think it will. I think anytime you lament, well, it'll change its character, but for better or worse, tough to say it's just going to be different, right? Because, for example, my values and your values are always going to be different. If I value having more, jobs and deals, then it might be better for me. And because of that, I will be less sensitive to my coffee being 25% more expensive. However, but if it's on your end and you value peacefulness, you value knowing anybody and everybody around you, like that really strong community vibe, then that will also change. I think it also depends on the attitude of the outsiders, you know, or initial outsiders the attitude of people who are moving from new york to atlanta are they ready to also understand atlanta as a place of its own with character and a city that already existed before you moved there or are you moving there to like make it into a new york of your image i think we should move on i mean talking about cities it could go on I i don't know regarding your question you know did we talk about anything that wasn't obvious but it was at least therapeutic Okay. Shall I move on? Let's do it. All right. My topic this week is successful people rarely admit how lucky they were. Here's why they should by Michelle DeHoog for The Correspondent. So this piece starts off with a bit of a personal story, which involves Cornell sociology students Mario Molina and Maurizio Buca, who were at a barbecue back in 2015. At this barbecue, they all sat down to play a game of president. Are you familiar with this no. card game? So you probably are, but in a different name or variation. So this card game is also known as asshole. Oh, okay. And asshole in some ways is a derivative or adjacent to big two, which a lot of Asian people yeah. know how to play. And basically the, the whole role of the game is to get rid of all your cards. Okay. Right. So with president, And I may make some errors here because I think there's a lot of variations, but essentially the game works is there's like a hierarchy, right? President being the highest, vice president being second. And then there's two bottom tier. I think it's like scum and co-scum. And anyways, after the first hands are decided in subsequent hands, the president is able to take the best card from the bottom. Yeah. 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 I've played this with big two. What was uncovered over the course of this sort of casual gaming session turned experiment was that Molina and Buka realized that many players incorrectly claimed that their wins were based on skill and not luck. I would also argue to an extent that these types of games are not as binary as like it's all luck or it's all skill. Like I think these types of games where you're trying to get rid of cards also have strategy involved in reducing your losses and or making sure you're not like the overall loser. I know this is not the point, but the fair way to play big two is to do it based off of points. So at the end of the round, when after the first person like clears all their cards, you stop, you don't keep going. And then you count how many cards you still have in your hand. And that's how many points you get. And then like first one to a hundred is a loser because it's like you accumulated the most points, which leans into the strategy side of like getting rid of cards. But that is not the point. This is not about playing card games so keep going the following monday molina buka were sufficiently interested in this phenomenon and just seeing this the social dynamic play out they set up their own experiment called the swap game in this game they made it even more simple and made it even more unfair for the losers and more beneficial for the winners and i I believe how they did this was they gave two cards in in these types of games the loser has to give their best cards to the winner. And in this case, the losers had to give two cards to the winners, which obviously compounds their ability to win potentially because you're just making it even more imbalanced. Mm-hmm. Yeah, Molina says it was clearly rigged. So the outcome, 
Molina and Buka concluded in a piece for Science Advances that whether people think something is fair depends not only on the rules, but also on whether they win or lose. In other words, most people are reasonable human beings, except when they win. And this can be summed up as this fascinating intersection of economic, sociological, and psychological research on cognitive dissonance. As, if I succeed, it is because of my talent, and if I fail, it's due to my circumstances. And then after that initial test, they kept doing other experiments involving quizzes and involving kind of setting up figures of authority versus figures with less authority. And they always found that in the surveys after the experiments, that people perceived the people in positions of power to be more competent. But again, it was clearly rigged, as in people were assigned to be managers or assigned to be quiz masters. Yeah, and they weren't actually based off of true skill. No, it's just an experiment. So it's like if me and Eugene entered a room and then we got Delta card and whoever was holding like a red card was the quiz master. That's literally what it is. But then at the end of the experiment, yeah. people still found the quiz masters to be more competent. There's also an interesting passage in this piece that is derived from the work of economist and author Robert Frank, who describes that as markets become winner takes all, we lose sight of certain things and drink our own Kool-Aid essentially. High-performing people see these as battles of skill and less so of outcomes based on luck. And this is a quote. Here's the thing. Success is the sum of talent, hard work, and luck. When many talented, hardworking people have to compete for success, the difference in quality between the best of the best is only minimal. The consequence? A highly skilled participant experiencing a little bit of bad luck will lose to a slightly less skilled participant who is luckier. And there's actually quite a few examples over the course of this piece that reinforce this. So they used an example of a soccer player who was in one of the lower leagues and through chance and being in the right place at the right time, scoring the winning goal, he ended up uh, elevating himself to one of the top leagues. And this is something that directly parallels my experiences and people that I know that have in many ways played for, you know, top clubs growing up in their youth. But for whatever reason, like they didn't have access to the right passport. So like, especially growing up Canadian, if you only have a Canadian passport, it's hard for you to go play in Europe because there's restrictions on foreigners, et cetera. Right. So you might not be the worst, but you're also not the best. So essentially you're cut out and your spot is given up to someone that has maybe less skill than you. Right. And it's also a matter of timing. Like you know, if a player is looking for a certain type of person to fill this role, and you happen to be that type of player, then you just won't fit into the team. I think it's interesting that both the author of this piece and Molina and Buka kept proving their original hypothesis, even though like from the start, they already had proof because I think it's they knew that it's not what people readily accept. Like they had to keep piling on the evidence. Almost. Uh, I'm going to save that thought. I'm going to ask you once I okay, finish sure. this. So towards the end, Buka says that the elites are much more inclined to believe in a meritocracy. In schools, they are already more self-confident than people from a lower social class, but it is also taught to them to claim their success to be assertive. And the author also suggests that this is dangerous because the more that successful people attribute their success to their own efforts, the less they will do for the collective. And the more the collective is neglected, the fewer people can experience luck. Good public facilities, Frank writes, are the one form of luck that we as a society have some control over. Mm. Prior to this piece, how did you look at luck in terms of success? I think I've been really lucky. But did you acknowledge it? And did you see any sort of positive things happen to you attributed to your own skill or to your luck? But where would I be acknowledging it? Are we talking about like self-acknowledgement? Are we talking about like, because not that well, many people interview me, Eugene. So I don't need to tell no, a lot no, of no, people know, like, oh, I've just been lucky. Self-acknowledgement. That's sufficient for me. For me, over the course of the last few months, I would definitely say that I've always seen luck to be a powerful thing. Because luck and timing, I think, go somewhat hand in hand. Right? They're things you can't really control. Success, timing, luck, I think is also a byproduct of privilege. And I think we've... There's been a lot of discussion around privilege in the last few months. And that in itself has probably illuminated how I look at this. And a lot of times when I look at how things play out, 
I have to acknowledge the fact that I was lucky. Like even the fact that I was able to move to Hong Kong, like I was lucky I was able to move to Hong Kong, right? It's decisions that were made outside of my control that allowed me the opportunity to do that. <sighs> Self-acknowledgement. Yeah. But I, but I, I mean, I don't know how yeah. it necessarily affects like my day-to-day actions and decisions, but I, it's not new to me sitting here in this moment to recognize that I was lucky just by the fact of the family I was born into that I was lucky to have parents who sent me to a private school and a private college and that they were also not just financially capable, but also emotionally supportive. I didn't control. I, I can't attribute any of that to my own work. At what point does this become self-handicapping for people that maybe aren't on the receiving end of good luck? If you're in a situation that you want to improve upon, how does one circumvent this or at least navigate it properly? I think, you know, there's an obviously I'm saying this like from such a point of privilege so I can hear myself and I'm like rolling my eyes at myself. But, you know, we can't we can't change the past and you can't change the cards that you've already been dealt. So you can't go back and say, if only I'd been born in a different family or a different time or a different place. and. Hopefully, it is more encouraging than discouraging to recognize that you've been dealt shittier cards, like you've been dealt a bad hand and what you make of it comes from having had a bad hand. And I think in practice, like that's such a hard thing to do, like what I just said. I mean, I look at things that are on the table currently because they bring up meritocracy, right? I wonder if it's about understanding where true meritocracy, well, true is virtually impossible but what are places and areas where you have more ability to apply all the things that define success which are luck hard work talent of course talent the one i like to think about the least but in terms of that maybe it's about finding being cognizant of the fact that certain places are a little bit more protected and how do you mitigate any outsized role any of these play So the one thing, obviously, you know, I like to use sports as a meritocracy, even though they refute it to an extent with the example of the player who started in the lower leagues and ended up going uh, to a higher level. Yeah. In terms of this, what I think is worth discussing is, you know, we also look at creative culture, right? Creative culture, to an extent, has luck, just like everything else in this world, but talent and hard work seem to be less driven by things that are out of your control. And what I mean by that is just as much as school takes an outsized role in your ability to get a job, it becomes less of an issue in terms of your ability to secure a job uh, in creative culture. And most recently, like I was um, listening to some people talk and they were saying that fashion itself, generally speaking, focuses a lot on what school you go to. But I I disagree, like outside of a few schools that you can name on maybe one or two hands, like it's not as though your success is defined by whether you can go to these schools or not, right? Whether it's FIT, whether it's Central St. Martin's, et cetera, et cetera. The luck in those circumstances to me does not come from the school. It comes from who you meet and who you have relationships with and whether those people like you. And that is partially about luck so you're saying that your after schooling success is defined by your luck to get into that school no i mean i think the reason why schools might play an outsized role in future success is not because of the education you receive but because of the type of people that you meet within schools whether that's your classmates or your teachers and This also comes down to timing, like what year you were in and which classes you were in and whose paths you crossed. And also, like, did you guys able to, you know, make a relationship? And that goes a long way. And it's not necessarily about, you know, technical skill or innate talent. I don't disagree with that. But to present the flip side, I think that where I am today, like having this conversation with you. The luck was probably less derived by my ability to go to the right school because I went to basically a school in my city 
did an economics degree that had very little relation to fashion, ended up moving to Hong Kong. And I think the part I was lucky, luckiest with over this sort of like career trajectory was the ability for, let's say my parents supported me when I was playing soccer growing up. And that was my opportunity to come to Hong Kong. Right. But then everything after the fact, like nothing I did beyond having access to the internet, maybe like going on Nike talk actually supported what I ended up doing. But isn't the whole point of this article is that like we have different people's lives are different mixtures of luck and hard work. So and talent and talent. And I don't think that the way you describe your trajectory is wrong at all. I think I would just say maybe you were less lucky than some people. And there are a lot of other people who are a whole lot luckier and have less talent, but are in the same or better places than you. Correct. But what I'm saying is that this is maybe digressing a bit too far from the first question I asked after the fact, which was about... Right. Which was, is the mindset self-handicapping? Yes. Because I do think about that a lot. It's that not everyone has access to everything. So how do you help give people the confidence and or help them navigate these challenging things out there. I mean, it's it's never been more competitive. There are so many people that are probably all vying for the same opportunity. So where can you find opportunity to carve something out for yourself? And there's something I actually wanted to bring up that was in relation to a few different things, especially the one that, especially the story I had done recently with uh, Protect This Black Business, which talked a lot about black entrepreneurship and how while some people have access to far more resources and and they're given a lot more opportunity to both experience failure and come out of it for certain people they only have one chance and one chance only right and i think that your ability to quote unquote exist and keep trying to hammer away at your at your you know inspirations and goals is in itself a form of luck, Mm -hmm. but in some ways it's also institutionalized because if I don't grant you the same amount of resources because you're black and he's white, that itself is the reduction of luck. You know, your original question as well, like you talked about, you talked about how whether creative industries are more equal. I don't feel like I agree with that statement. I just feel that the luck and bad luck we have follows us everywhere because of you know what we're saying about like the family you're born into and the color of skin you're born with and what gender you're born as and those things go everywhere i don't know if i can't think of an industry that necessarily like disregards those things yeah but at the same time i do feel like incrementally yeah there are industries that reward talent greater than others and i would like to think that when it comes to creative industries talent does go further talent and hard work i I don't know i think same along the same lines of what i said about like when you're in school and you meet people i see my relationships with people through the years as a kind of luck because of luck in timing and your paths crossing i see it as a kind of luck that we were at hypebeast at the same time Mm -hmm. And, and not just me and you but that we were at hypebeast at the same time as the other people that were at Hypebeast at that time. And that's not something I controlled. And obviously, like both you and I, you know, we put effort into our relationships with our colleagues, but who was there was up to chance. You know what I think about when I look back at the luck I've had is that I hope I don't squander the luck. And I don't know if that's like me oh. applying too much pressure on myself, but I feel like I got dealt a really good hand. And I know that with hard work and application and like awareness, then I'll make the most of that. And I don't want to just like sit on the luck and have that be like what got me here. Yeah. I mean, it's kind of like playing it forward. Your hope is that you acknowledge the luck, but that's the challenge, right? Is like some people think that if you're caught in this crossroads where everything that you've achieved is because you're self-made and it's not because of luck, then as they mentioned, it's dangerous because you don't see the need to play it forward. Yeah, then you look at others and you wonder why they're not where you are. In July's editor's letter, I opened up with a quote that Scott found called, The harder I work, the luckier I get by Samuel Goldwyn. 
And it's something I subscribe to where in the face of adversity, in the face of a lack of luck, there's really only one variable amidst everything that you can control, right? Yeah. Whether it's talent, luck, or hard work. So you can either choose to not have access to the other two, or you can choose to focus on what you can control. And I, I've personally found that hard work and, and humility be, to be two very powerful forces because if you work hard and willing to put in the work, but also humble to the results, you're able to learn and grow quickly. Mm-hmm. That's sort of been my game plan and tactic. I remember when I was a kid, and I might have referenced this on a previous episode, my dad was always like, oh, like, weekends are never like the most talented, but we work the hardest. And that always stuck with me when I was a kid. It's true. It's definitely something that I know that I can rely on because, I mean, putting in hard work is not, it's not always an enjoyable experience, right? Yeah. When things get too hard, too difficult, takes too much time, they just drop out. And what you do realize is that if you continue and persevere on and by the time you look around, there's few other people by your side and that in itself has value. And I think that manifests itself in some sort of success. You know, what's funny is I didn't think of this until you said it, but my mom used to say something to me that was kind of motivational in the same way, not quite as catchy, but she would always tell me to do my best. And Whatever I had finished doing in the evaluation of that, she would ask me, did you do your best? And I think that has really stuck with me because I always know now as an adult when I haven't done my best. And at the same time, it's encouraging because it's like, well, all I can do is my individual best. So shout out to our parents, what this comes down to. It's a good place to cap things off. Yep. If you're interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focus on the sights and sounds of creative culture, visit us at makin.com, M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by sharing this podcast with a friend or supporting us via patreon.com slash makin. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at sharice at makin.com, C-H-A-R-I-S, or eugene at makin.com, E-U-G-E-N-E. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.